I'm Talib Vizram and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. This week, we'll hear how one professional athlete started his own Premier League, learn about the excess waste we're creating as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, and get some safe travel tips. This is your Fast Break. According to the CDC, full competition between teams from different geographic areas is the highest risk for athletes these days. But in spite of that, several major league sports teams have restarted their seasons, some more successfully than others. Here to share his experience as both an athlete and founder of a professional sports league is Paul Rabel. Welcome to the show, Paul. Alan, thanks for having me. Sure. Let's start right at the beginning. If you met someone who'd never seen or heard of lacrosse, how would you describe it? Well, first, I would say that's okay. Um, we're, we're, we're still largely, when you think about mainstream sports, you think about the big four, the legacy leagues of the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, then the NHL. And at our core, lacrosse is a Native American game. It's indigenous to North America. So it was created by the Iroquois, which is, is actually known on the reservation as the Haudenosaunee. And it's what they refer to as the creator's game. It's a form of medicine. It's a form of spirituality. And over time, going back hundreds of years, it has become commercialized first by French colonists in Canada. And then it made its way over into the U.S. And it's been played at the collegiate level largely since the early 1900s and was adopted by the NCAA in 1972. And then it's been competed internationally even, first in the Olympics in the early 1900s, then it fell out of the Olympic sport. To answer your question quickly, Talib, it's, it's a combination of the endurance that you see in soccer, the contact and football, the hand-eye coordination of, of hockey because it's a stickball sport, and I think the mm -hmm. speed and agility of basketball. I'm partial, obviously, but I've played all those sports <laughs> and, and fell in love with lacrosse. So like you said, it's not kind of one of the top four uh, sports in this country. So how did you get into it originally? Yeah, so I grew up in Maryland. And if you look at the US and lacrosse hotbeds, traditionally, it was Maryland and New York, and largely the Northeast and the game has made its way west. Even in the area of Maryland, in certain areas of New York, lacrosse was unpopular. It, 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 real hotbeds are Long Island, and then Baltimore. And I was introduced to the sport at the rec level when I was 12 years old. My neighbor had picked up the game. I liked basketball more than lacrosse. And I decided, hey, let me give this a shot, primarily because I wanted to play a sport with my friends. And I wasn't too good at it because it's really technical, which is part of our challenge as a sport, is explaining rules, much like hockey. But I started getting good at it. And I think I mean, general philosophy in life around things that we do for a living are often things that we're passionate about, which largely have to do with things that we're good at. And I became good at lacrosse for whatever reasons that my skill sets make it. And I began to pursue it at the collegiate level and then professionally. So can you delve into the business model behind the Premier Lacrosse League? And, and how does that compare with the other major sports leagues? So at its core, we're what's called a single entity league. So that means that our seven teams are still owned by you know, one cap table. And unique to other sports, though, as we looked at the future of and the value of, of pro athletes in today's generation is, is that they're your most important assets. So when we built our league and had the benefit of creating a single entity structure, 
is that we created space in our cap table for our players to have stock options. So our, our players are actually equity holders of the league, and that makes us really unique. So we have a really strong investor core that understands sports and sports media. And then our bet was, you know, if we have a full regular season, if we have playoffs and championship, like in sports, players take care of your product. Your product's going to be great because of your players. So it comes down to really distribution and sports is a form of entertainment. So how are we distributing our live games? And then how are we using social media and digital media to tell more kind of like more integrative stories, not just about our athletes, but certain storylines and statistics and sports betting. And um, I think we've done a pretty good job of that up to this point. Well, let's talk about that. You have your own podcast and a, and a very active Instagram account. So how do those play into your marketing strategy for the league? Well, I think for a while, it's, I've been able to uh, leverage new media to convince people that I'm a lot better player than I actually am. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but beyond that, I, I mean, going back to my story, I graduated from Johns Hopkins in 2008. And I uh, first took a job in commercial real estate as an analyst. And there was this light bulb moment that went off was as I saw more subscribers come through and then people commenting and they wanted to know what I was doing, not from Monday through Thursday in real estate, but what I was doing on the weekends playing professional lacrosse. So I really started and I enjoy marketing. I enjoy media, but I really started leaning into that. And I was an early adopter of Twitter and Instagram and I had built a YouTube channel and then, you know, fast forward 10 years and I was still playing in that league and wages were still flat at $8,000 on average. <laughs> I had a much bigger audience following than the league and the teams combined. And I realized that like there were two things. One, power to players, power to influencers, and power to strong marketers now in this mm -hmm. world that we're living for at a really meta standpoint you used to build a product and go try to find an audience to buy it now you build an audience and you create products to sell to them that was what occurred to us around a chance to revive professional lacrosse as i had an audience some of our other top players had audiences let's think about how the game can be reinvented and presented to them right Let's talk about the quarantine tournament that you started, the championship series. Um, how did you go about developing that? Like we had our season two scheduled and we were selling tickets and we were selling thousands of tickets a day back in January, February and up to March 9th when we had a board meeting in LA and we were aware of this you know, the disease that was rapidly spreading throughout the world. And even in that board meeting on March 9th, we dedicated a large portion of our time to understanding the pandemic, but our, our season wasn't starting until June. And none of us knew how this thing was going to unfold. And then we went off and found internal disease specialists and internal medicine doctors to advise us. And we put together a medical committee, yeah. but we also looked at and we're early to look at a bubble because we then thought logically, if fans were unsafe, how could players be safe without any vaccine? So given the size of our league, it actually became advantageous versus National Basketball Association or Major League Baseball because we had seven teams and you know a lot fewer players to have concerns around. So we immediately began building this bubble model. We went to Utah based off of 
number of cases and spikes compared to other states and also the campus that we secured for three and a half weeks were able to embody 300 total participants and mm -hmm. we found out that the bubble format actually worked yeah and the reason that it works is you quarantine you test before travel you provide kind of exclusive travel to those who have tested negative then you test again on site to confirm then you test again shortly after and then once you get through those three to four tests if you can fully lock down a bubble and everyone involved it seals off in the short term for kind of necessity of economy and back to work for the labor force you're seeing more bubble formats it's crazy to think how much goes into it if you're, you know, if you're taking it responsibly, which you, which you clearly are. For you and your tournament, what was it like working with NBC to set it up? And, and what's the fans experience been like, um, you know, for those watching at home? Yeah, it's a great question, Tal, because we, uh, we had the idea. We knew what it would take to build. We were still very uncertain if we were gonna be able to pull it off because our medical committee was working for two and a half months on building the protocol and the virus was evolving and we were learning about it and are still learning about it today. So there was, there was no blueprint and still isn't as we're learning the success of bubbles and the unsuccess of single site. But step two was this thing isn't gonna get off if we don't have distribution from our partners. So we have a three year media rights deal with NBC and this was year two. We we're planning to play 43 games. We brought to them a 20 game schedule, which was essentially a tournament that we mapped out that mirrored a World Cup where there's group play and then single elimination. Yeah. And we said, okay, with the Olympics now being postponed, you have theoretically this open programming window from July 25th to August 9th. If we were to create an opportunity where we could play, would you all place us in a lot more television spots than we were previously scheduled to do? So we were really excited to continue that partnership and it was pretty groundbreaking and it, and it really propelled the PLL into homes that otherwise hadn't seen the sport before. Yeah, totally. How do you go about balancing being an athlete and being an executive? You know, we, we see the Williams sisters and, and Derek Jeter kind of parlaying their athletic careers into successful business ventures. Uh, what comes first for you? Yeah, I don't think I do it very well. Um, you know, the, 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 the two seasons that we have had that I've played in as, as a co-founder and player, statistically just haven't been what I had done in the previous 11 of my career and then, you know, take 15 going back to college. So you learn, we learn about ourselves and we learn about how, you know, just how difficult, unique, even sports are, I'm 34 years old. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in, you know, it, from an age standpoint, the twilight of my career, objectively. Um, but I, I would say, you know, I, I admire the Williams sisters, and I admire Derek Jeter and, and admire, you know, Tom Brady and LeBron James and folks that have ventures off of the court and the field and out of the swimming pool, if you're Michael Phelps. But the differentiation there is my business and my venture as an executive is the same one that I'm playing in. It's, it's challenging. It's challenging physically. It's challenging mentally. And there's a psychological component, too, that, you know, I've put myself in because I feel like I can still play at the highest level and, and do in many cases. And I also put, you know, my colleagues, the players, my opponents, my teammates in that position where they're strapping up and seeing against the co-founder. And like, what does that mean? And, uh, and so it's, uh, it's hard, but it's been fun. It's unique to any other uh, sport in the world right now at the professional level. So I think it's, it's another step in the evolution of the impact of 
connection between entrepreneurs and chief executives and audiences and the benefit of that happening to their business. Yeah, I, I'm kind of thinking of an analogy of, you know, a director who also stars in his own movie. I was thought I was think that that that's probably pretty difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. And I hope uh, and, and, you know, the, I guess the difference in the casting world is it's highly subjective. You know, you have amazing musicians who never sell a record and you have talented actors that are never casted. And with sports, the merit hopefully will for at least as long as I play supersede the threat of uh, casting myself to use your example. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Just to change topics for a second, you've been vegan for about a year now, if, if that's right. Um, what was your motivation behind that decision and, and how is that affecting your athletic performance? Well, I feel like it's, it's uh, impacted me both physically and mentally in a very positive way. I started experimenting with my diet when I herniated my disc in my back. So, I've, oh, wow. and that actually began in the summer of 2018. And I had tried basically everything to help back pain and back pain, especially as an athlete can really limit your ability to play. And I was just at a breaking point and I, you know, did more research on you know, inflammation related to your herniated disc pressing against your sciatica nerve. Mm. It, my thought was, is if I could lower inflammation in my body, that maybe it would just press a little bit less against that sciatica nerve. So I started studying inflammation related to meat in your midsection. You know, I, I ventured into veganism uh, first out of performance, and then I've uh, since benefited, I think, from a, from a mental, from an energy, from a clarity standpoint. And then I've, I've learned more about the impacts on society and our animals. And, you know, I, th I think it's like our plants and harvest and, and even our access to water. So I realized, too, that uh, every person and every athlete certainly is different. And it's important, to, I think, if you can have access to try to understand what your body responds well to, and, and that's best done through blood work. Sure. So finally, what's next for you and, and the Premier Lacrosse League? Yeah, appreciate you asking. We finished our championship game on NBC on, on August 9th. And for us, we have to get back up and kind of every day and work with uh, as certainly as co-founders is managing your team. I think our fam my family is right now is, is this company. And, and so like the days go on. We've begun already scenario planning and modeling what 2021 will look like in a world where COVID still is the way it is and where we've eradicated it, which is the least likely, and then every kind of scenario in between. So that's where we're at. And we're doing a lot of reporting as, as every company should after their big event or in our case, our season and sharing those notes with sponsors and players and network and back to uh, back to the grind. So it's a uh, it's a bit of a it's, it's kind of a bit of a wheel there. You kind of sometimes feel like you're running in place. Yeah, I bet. Well, best of luck with it all. And, and I hope um, as with everything, things get back to normal sooner rather than later. I appreciate that. And, and, and same to you as, as we uh, kind of use this Zoom here to do a podcast. Thanks for having me on. And uh, we're both kind of in, you know, in unique spots. But right now, everyone's having to do podcasts the way that we are and, you know, media the way that we are. And so this was actually an, an opportunity for us to gain some ground into the mainstream spotlight. And I think those opportunities are there for all of us. While there's not a whole lot of good news these days, there have been a few upsides to lockdown orders and shutdowns. 
The skies are much cleaner and carbon emissions are projected to be 4% lower compared to last year. But the pandemic has also increased the use of disposable plastic products. About 129 billion face masks and 65 billion gloves, to be exact. I spoke to some people who are working on highlighting and addressing these issues. You know, we've had to do a little bit of adjustment um, due to, to COVID and some of the, the beach restrictions. And I think first and foremost, we're, we're tracking that and making sure that volunteers are following you know, local regulations about beach closures. That's Rachel Kocher from Surf Rider Foundation, where she is a plastic pollution manager. The group has volunteers across 80 U.S. chapters. They remove litter and debris from beaches regularly and then log the number of items they find in Surfrider's online database. As of June, the volunteers had picked up 23 disinfectant wipes, 23 gloves and 12 masks. And in addition to that, once they get out into the environment, and you know, most of these items do contain plastic, just becomes microplastics, which are then easily consumed by fish and plankton and even, as we know ourselves, um, are consuming microplastics. So it's definitely going to contribute to that larger problem for sure. Before they become microplastics, though, these items are already a catastrophe for biodiversity. Sea turtles confuse the latex-filled gloves for jellyfish and can die from asphyxiation or starvation because their stomachs think they're full. Dolphins are also at risk for swallowing bundled masks. Ocean Conservancy is a non-profit environmental advocacy group that does an international coastal cleanup once a year in September. This year, its volunteers will be able to update the group's online database, CleanSwell, with COVID-19 related items. This global pandemic is really highlighting one just how critical proper waste collection and recycling is to our, our global society. And then secondly, highlight the need to really get a handle on our addiction to single-use plastics and making reductions wherever and however possible. Senior director of its Trash Free Seas program, Nick Malos, worries that the buildup of plastic waste could lead to an increased amount of standing water. And this could create new diseases altogether. And, you know, in many places around the world where the ability to manage this type of waste does not exist, you know, what we may be doing is slowly building a, a second future crisis. Because disposable masks count as single-use plastics, Kocha says people should be buying reusable masks instead. There are ways to use these items in a sustainable manner. So I think there just needs to be a better messaging around how to properly use these items because they're not going away anytime soon. So how can we, you know, put together um, more responsible distribution or, or management systems for these items so that they don't end up on the beach? Here are three things to consider while we're all still handling this crisis. One, Plastic is cheaper to make now because oil and gas markets have tanked, so it's more prevalent in packaged goods. Remember this when making your next online purchase. 2. Single-use plastic has increased because of more takeout orders, so keep that in mind when planning your next meal. 3. Recycling systems have broken down because of budget cuts, so now recycled waste is ending up in landfills and dumps. 
So think about some creative ways to reuse plastic and glass containers. There are calls to clean up the oceans by 2030. Creating transparent supply chains is a start, according to some environmental organizations. If companies share their operational data over the next 10 years, industries, governments, and consumers will all be able to make smarter decisions to preserve our oceans. Most of us have been on what seems like a permanent staycation since March. I've been nervous myself of getting on a plane or staying at a hotel, so I finally decided to rent a car last week and drive up to Vermont, and it was exactly what I needed. But ask me again in a week. Fast Company senior staff rider Liz Segrin was also concerned about traveling, so she looked into a couple of safe alternatives for her recent trip. It's been really hard for me to get away throughout this period because I have a small child. Nothing really feels that safe. I'm really worried about hotels, but we just got back from a vacation in New Hampshire where we stayed in the middle of the forest, far away from other people. And we had s'mores by the fire. We slept in very comfortable beds and I feel totally refreshed for the first time in six months. Here are three things that can help you have a fun, relaxing, but safe vacation during the pandemic. I found an amazing startup called Getaway that has little cabins in wooded areas an hour away from every major city. Getaway has taken these tiny houses and set them in the middle of the woods. They're tiny, but extremely comfortable. You get a little kitchen, a shower, and a bathroom. But the best thing about it is that when you go to sleep at night, there is a full glass window that you're staring out of so that you can look right into the forest as you're going to sleep and as you wake up in the morning. Each cabin also comes with its own little fire pit and Adirondack chairs and picnic table. The goal of these getaway cabins is really to spend as much time as you can outside. We spent our days going for little hikes, eating picnics at the picnic table. I took my hammock and sat outside in the forest and read a book for a little while. After six months of feeling totally stuck at home, I had no idea how great it would feel to be away in the forest, just out of the house. My daughter is noticeably happier and my husband and I don't get on each other's nerves as much. It's amazing. The founder of Getaway has thought a lot about what it takes for us to create balance in our busy modern lives. In fact, he's written a book about it called Getting Away. And I bought it and brought it home because I feel like there are lots of things that we can do now in the middle of the pandemic while we're at home to try and replicate the feeling that I had while I was camping. Just things like putting your phone away for long stretches of time so you're not always plugged in or spending some time in nature every day. These are little things that we can do that make us feel like we're getting away when we don't have the opportunity to get away. I haven't taken a flight since the beginning of this pandemic, but I have friends and family members who have had to. So if you happen to be somebody who needs to take a trip to visit a family member or for work, there are things that you can do to make the trips feel a little safer. One of the best ones that I've found is a company called Nice Seats that make these little pouches that contain a seat cover for your flight. 
So when you get on a plane and find your seat, you don't have to bring a whole bag of Lysol wipes so that you can wipe down your entire seat and feel safe. All you have to do is drape the seat cover on top of it and you can feel comfortable knowing that you're not actually making contact with the seat and whoever sat there before you. And when you're done, you pick everything back up, put it back in the pouch, and when you get home, you can just machine wash everything. It's a little thing that you can do to feel safer while you're traveling. And here's another tip. It works great for buses and trains as well. So you can bring it with you wherever. I grew up traveling a lot. And so I've had a lot of time to think about what makes the best suitcase. And by far, my favorite comes from a German company called Remoa. Or if you're actually German, you would pronounce it Remova. Remova suitcases are designed to withstand a beating. We all know how much our suitcases can be put through on just two days of travel, but these suitcases are hardy. I brought my suitcase with me on this camping trip and I was pretty sure that it would be safe from bears. The suitcase combines the best German engineering with a love of travel. I, for one, can't wait for the day when we'll be able to travel like we used to. But until that time comes, these things can hopefully help us get out of the house in a way that is relaxing, fun, and also safe. That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Vizrang.